Thank you for watching this online message from Riverstone Church. We hope that this content encourages you and helps you further develop your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit riverstonechurch.net. There you can learn more about us, view additional messages, submit your prayer needs, and even give online. Thank you for watching, and may the Lord richly bless you. Thank you, praise team. I, I kind of enjoyed that trip back in time. You know, everybody has their own musical preferences, and, and it's hard to try to honor everybody's desires, expectations, preferences when it comes to music, but uh, I'm, I'm kind of the old school crowd. Um, it was interesting. Uh, I think it was last year, maybe the year before, I was preaching at a church down in southwest Virginia, and um, the, the theme of the weekend was uh, dealing with issues of persecution, which uh, most of my ministry, that, that's what I was a part of. And I just kind of spontaneously asked the question, if, if you knew tomorrow you were going to prison for your faith, you could only take one song with you. If, if, if your memory was just erased of everything else except the lyrics of one song, which one would you pick? And it was not just older people, it was younger too. And it uh, didn't surprise me, but maybe it did surprise me a little bit that most of the songs that were chosen were... Uh, I think the, the newest song was probably about 50 years old, most of them uh, with a couple of centuries that they've been used in worship and, and all of them very theologically rich. So I, I would encourage you, if you're kind of new to the faith or new to the church, um, go back when you get a chance and revisit some of those old songs, and, and you, you will be blessed. If you wouldn't mind, turn with me to First Peter Chapter 1, First Peter chapter 1, we're going to read two verses of Scripture. Now, I would ask you, if you wouldn't mind, to please stand for the reading of God's Word as we honor His Word and trust that He's going to speak to us today. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And Lord, we thank you that we can gather together around your word this morning, that we're still able to gather without uh, any kind of fear of reprisals. Lord, that we're able to gather around your word, to publicly read it, to publicly declare it, to celebrate it as we worship you. And Lord, I pray that you'll help me this morning. Uh, my, my heart's full, Lord. I, I pray that what comes out, Lord, will be infused with 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 grace be infused with anointing the power of the holy spirit but lord i know it's your word that accomplishes your work now i pray lord you'll help us be faithful lord in our hearing and our listening you'll be help me to be faithful in the delivery dear heavenly father and lord that you'll open our eyes to see our ears to hear and our hearts to really understand what 
you're saying. That you'll transform our wills to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. So that we leave here this morning, Lord, not just with more information. But, Lord, transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Who would you say was the most wicked ruler that the world has ever known? And probably depending on your age would influence your choice. Maybe someone this morning thought of Adolf Hitler or, or Chairman Mao. Maybe someone thought of Joseph Stalin or Idi Amin or, or Saddam Hussein. If you're a historian, maybe you, you thought of Emperor Nero, who was the most incredibly wicked of all the emperors of Rome. He was the ruler of the known world during the time that the apostle Peter penned these words, and his personal, his public evil was without any, any parallel. Just a few examples. Nero fell in love with the wife of another man, and in order to please her, he had his own mother condemned to death. He divorced his wife, and later he put that lover to death. Nero, who was insane in his wickedness, apparently set fire to Rome and then blamed the Christians for the arson, and they were slain by the tens of thousands after having their property taken from them. They were thrown in prison. They were tortured in horrible ways. History would tell us that some of them were coated with tar and actually set on fire as lights in Nero's gardens. Some were sewn into the uh, hides of animals and then thrown to wild dogs as, as a, a means of entertainment and sport. And this little epistle, this little letter that Peter wrote, written in his own handwriting as he held the pen, in his own language, we have to remember, was authored ultimately by the Holy Spirit, by God himself. Sometimes you hear preachers say, well, Paul wrote, Mark wrote. That's a reference to the human instrument, but don't get confused. What we're reading this morning, what we're going to look at is not the word of a man. The word of God through the hands of a man. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as he penned these words, probably between 63, 64 AD, Scripture tells us in, in, in Peter's writing, he was writing from a place he referred to as Babylon. Probably not literally Babylon, but, but perhaps a code word for, for Rome. Certainly code for a place of wickedness, a world that was growing increasingly dark. It's important to remember that Peter wrote as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So though he was writing to a particular group of people, a people that we know as the diaspora or those who were scattered, his words are still relevant to us today. And I hope will encourage you today, will encourage me today. God's word is never dated. It is not old. It is not irrelevant. It is not just for another age or another people. But it is for us today 
because it's living truth for us now to help us and to encourage us in our times of stress, in our times of difficulty. And in this little book, if you read all of 1 Peter, you'd find a wealth of hope for the suffering. A wealth of hope for those who are insecure as we face uncertain times. Now this letter was originally sent out to Christians who were living outside of Jerusalem. They were people scattered. Some translations use the word strangers. Others use the word pilgrims or aliens. Our uh, translation this morning uses the word exiles. People who were scattered. Some of these were people who had, were, were Jews who had been visiting Jerusalem during the celebration of Pentecost. Scripture gives us a list of some of those who were there. Arabs and Persians, Elamites and Asians, Egyptians and Libyans. They had heard the gospel and returned to their homes throughout the Roman Empire, many of them going back as Christians. Some of the scattered were the believers who left Jerusalem during the initial wave of persecution that followed the, the stoning of Stephen. Some were converts out of various heathen religions, Gentiles, who were converted as followers of Jesus Christ. Maybe they carried Roman citizenships. Maybe they were identified as Greek or as Jew, but they were different. They were strangers. They were citizens, ultimately, of another world. They were in the world, but they were not of it. And you see, this sense of not belonging is a part of our Christian heritage. That we are strangers in a strange land. We are in this world, but we are not part of it. We are on a journey. You know, if, if I'd have known Chuck was going to be up here, maybe we could have incorporated a few of these old songs. Maybe some of you remember them. Songs that remind us that we're not meant for this place. Maybe you've heard these lyrics. This world is not my home. I'm only passing through. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Or maybe this one, my heavenly home is bright and fair. I feel like traveling on until that blessed home I see. I feel like traveling on with Timothy up here on the fiddle and Jacob on the guitar. Maybe we could have hit a little bluegrass. I am a poor wayfaring stranger traveling through this world of woe. You see, scripture reminds us that this world is not our home. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, we're instructed, reminded that we are strangers, pilgrims in this land. Hebrews 11, verse 13 declares that those who died in the faith were pilgrims. You see, our journey began at salvation, and it will not be over until we are safely home. But friends, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. And I would encourage you to keep that in mind because our human tendency is sometimes try to put down very deep roots where we're only meant to drive tent pegs. This is not our home. There is a home that awaits us. And I love the way the Lord just orchestrates things. The, the scriptures that reminded us that there's one who's coming back for us to take us where our real home is. He said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. But I'm coming back. And you see, this letter was written as a new severe wave of persecution was beginning. 
you look around, you hear the rumblings, you hear the threatenings. Dear brother, dear sister, we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared. Am I alarmist? Absolutely not. Am I trying to stir something up this morning? No way. But the handwriting is on the wall. And we need to be prepared by putting the Word of God deeply in our heart and standing on it as difficulties come, as challenges come, as suffering comes. Peter wrote to encourage God's people with a word of hope, with a word of assurance, and I pray He'll use me in that way this morning. And I pray that through examining these two verses of Scripture, which just seem maybe on a surface reading is kind of insignificant, just, just a greeting. But we're going to walk out of here with a deeper peace than maybe we walked in with. You see, because these words are not wasted words. There are no wasted words in Scripture. Even what seems to be just kind of a quick greeting is infused with richness. Consider, for example, the way it opens. To those who are elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You see, friends, through salvation, and salvation is the key this morning. If you're here this morning, and you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're here this morning, you've come kind of explore, well, what's this all about? I pray that somehow you'll see the beauty of the gospel this morning. The fact that though we were dead in sin... Liars, thieves, adulterers, murderers, go down the list of the Ten Commandments. Every one of us has broken every one of them, if not literally, then certainly in spirit. Jesus said, if you've even looked at another person with a lustful heart, you've already committed adultery. Jesus said, if you've already hated somebody, you've already murdered them, we're guilty. But Jesus came to take our place to take the punishment that was due us, to satisfy the wrath of God so that justice could be declared. It's paid for. The debt is paid. The fine is paid. It's settled. The account has been settled. And through the work of Christ, we walk in freedom. If you've never heard that before, you don't understand it, I'd love to talk to you after the service. But for those who have put their trust in the work of Jesus Christ, who have been born again, who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we find that through salvation, we have assurance in our standing before God. Theologians call this the doctrine of election. We are elect. We are chosen. You see, every four years, we go to the polls to elect a president. Whether we personally cast our ballot for the winner or not, or even if we don't vote. When the results are in, we say that the new president was elected by the American people. He is our president, regardless of how we voted. And we have to live with the results, whether we like them or not. And then in four years, we get a do-over. We get to try again. You see, but God is sovereign, and he does not make a mistake. He does not need a do-over every four years in his omniscience, the fact that he knows everything that can be known, that ever will be known, in his omnipresence, the fact that he is still in the past with us here and in our future, his foreknowledge, he knows what's coming, he knows what our response to the gospel will be. 
But let me be clear, his work is not dependent on our response. Because he is the one who has given us the faith to respond. He is the one that has opened our eyes of understanding and giving us the ability to believe. He is the one, Scripture says, who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. His work in no way is dependent on us, but is dependent solely on himself. And that should bring us great hope, great assurance, and great peace. Because we have been chosen. We have been chosen. Ephesians 1.4 tells us he chose us before the foundation of the world. Another one of those old songs, I think dating back to the 70s, had a verse which proclaimed, When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Well, actually, we were on his mind long before the cross. You see, in our human nature, we forget the words of Jesus in John 15, 16, which says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And understand that when he chose us, it wasn't on the basis of any merit of our own, because there was none. If you think about the Old Testament saints, particularly Abraham, chosen to be the father of a people, the father of a nation. Did God choose him? After his obedience and the, the sacrifice of Isaac, which, which God intervened and stayed his hand? No. God chose Abraham before he did anything. And by faith, Abraham responded. And then all that happened in Abraham's life was a fruit of being chosen. You see, God is the one that chose us, not because of any work that we've done. He chose us purely and simply because he wanted to. And what he has chosen, what he has purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, he will indeed keep. I was trying to think of an illustration. I was looking at my Bible this morning as I was going through my preparations again. And I, I chose this Bible. There were dozens of Bibles at the bookstore I got this at. I could have chosen one with a red cover. I could have chosen one with small print. I could have chosen one fit in my pocket. But I chose this one. Why? It's the one I chose, the one I wanted. It's mine. If you turn it over here to the first page, presented to Jay Temple, in this case, presented by me. But my name's in it because it's mine. And I take care of it. It grieves me when, when a page rips. It bothers me when a little bit of coffee drips on the pages. That's life. That happens. But it's mine. And I try to take care of it. Now think about God. Who has written his name on us according to the book of Revelation. Who cares for us and chose us. And those whom he chooses, he keeps. And he walks with and he journeys with. That should give us peace as we wonder what in the world is going on in these crazy times we're living with. When we worry about the future. Or maybe we're worried about the past. Something that's already settled and done by the blood of Jesus. But it still bothers us. You see through salvation we have assurance of our standing before God. That he indeed chose us. 
because he wanted us, he purchased us, and he will keep us. We see in verse 2 that through salvation, we have assurance of the work of the Holy Spirit, which is our sanctification. In the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, sanctification is a word in its most basic context simply means being set apart for a specific purpose. In general, these days, we don't use the word sanctified outside of a theological context. But think of it this way. My wife and I got married, like many married couples of our generation. One of the first things we got as a gift was a nice, real fancy set of china. Kind of china that doesn't come out of the china cabinet. And we had a china cabinet that was also given to us. And it was in our living room, and I'd walk at that, those dishes, and I dare not touch them. Because those were set apart. Those were sanctified for special occasions. And maybe once, twice, maybe three times a year, those came out and were used for the purpose of entertaining guests or celebrating a special occasion. You see, set apart is what sanctification means and we're set apart by God through this concept called holiness. Holiness. And there are two aspects to holiness. There are two aspects to sanctification. One we would call positional holiness. See, we don't always hear as much about sanctification as we did back in the old days for those of us that you know, grew up in the church. And we forget that, that there is a twofold meaning. On, on one hand, we are sanctified by something that has already happened, which is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Positional holiness. We have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ at the time of our conversion. There was a swap that took place where our filthy rags were swapped for his righteous robes. He took our place on the cross, and now we are seen as holy, as righteous, as absolutely perfect from an eternal, heavenly perspective. Our position before God is a position of righteousness, a position of holiness. Just like the instruments in the tabernacle were consecrated as holy, and only to be used in the worship of God, so we have been consecrated and dedicated for the use of our Savior. Jesus prayed this way in John chapter 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate. Jesus saying, I consecrate, I sanctify Myself, I set myself apart so that they also may be sanctified in truth. You see, Jesus came to live in this world, but was apart from the world. He was in it, but not part of it. He was set apart from the world and set apart to do the things of the Father. And we've been set apart that way. In God's eyes, we are the already being seen through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not our own works, lest we could boast in ourselves, but there is a living out then of this experience called practical holiness. 
Have you ever wondered about the, the societal and the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament? Why not eat pork? Now, I'll tell you, there's nothing better than a good ham biscuit or bacon sandwich. Why, why should little boys be circumcised? And why should men not cut the corner of their beards? What was wrong with wearing clothes of mixed fibers? You see, God gave these laws, among other reasons, so that His people would be different. Different than the world around them. And even in the New Testament, in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed is the peacemaker, blessed are the meek, etc. You read that whole sermon, and right in the middle of it, Matthew chapter 6, 8, as Jesus is speaking of prayers and the practices of heathen peoples, he pauses and he just says, don't be like them. Don't be like them. Don't be like the world around you. In one sense, sanctification means positional holiness, who we already are in Christ because of his work. But in the other sense, practical holiness is what we do with that. It's how we live it out. It's living out our salvation with holy and right kind of living. This is a form of sanctification that is expressed as we mature in our faith. As we grow in the knowledge of God. As we grow in His perfection. As we are conformed more and more to the image of Christ. We are being sanctified. We should be being sanctified day by day. And it will continue until we stand before Jesus and see him face to face. There's peace that comes from knowing we have been chosen from God. And friends, let me be direct. There's peace from knowing that we're living right. That we're living according to what God's word says. And I, I can't stress this enough to all of us, especially young people. The world looks mighty good. But there's nothing better than living for the Lord. Through salvation, we have assurance of the sovereign purposes of God. Verse 2, which is our obedience. For obedience to Jesus Christ. You see, obedience is an evidence of salvation. Scripture says obedience is better than sacrifice because it is an evidence of salvation. And if we wonder, am I saved? If we wonder, where am I in relationship to God? Sometimes we need just do an obedience check. Are we doing what he said to do? Are we staying away from what he said to stay away with? And I'm not talking about legalistic stuff to where our performance tries to make God like us better or not. I'm just saying obedience is a fruit of salvation. It's an evidence because Jesus himself said obedience is a mark of relationship. Isn't he the one who said in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. You see, salvation is a place of security. John 15, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. 
obedience in some way is like a fence designed for our security. My kids were little. I'd take them to, to Penn Park and some of the other places around. And we'd get there. I'd turn them loose. But I turned them loose with an understanding. Here's the barriers. You don't go out of the, the mulch pit. You don't go past this little, little uh, fence that's set here in the ground. You can do whatever you want within those boundaries. But you step out of those boundaries and you're going to sit down or I'm going to take you home. And it wasn't meant to, to restrict them. It was meant for their safety and for their peace of mind. To know that someone was watching over them. Somebody was taking note. Somebody cared enough to set boundaries. And if you look at the scriptural boundaries. And again, I, I know we don't like to talk about these things. Because I like to do what I like to do. And some of what I like to do, God's word says don't do. But it's there for my good. For my security. For my safety. And we see obedience as an evidence of salvation, an evidence of relationship, but as a place of security. Because if you're obeying, you're not going to get in trouble. Not legitimate trouble. We do know they're false accusers. We know that, that there is a price for, for, for being godly. And some of our brothers are paying it in many parts of the world. And some increasingly within our own borders. Salvation, God's sovereign purposes, which are marked by obedience, are also a means of joy. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, is immediate followed by verse 11, where Jesus continues, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. What's the context? Obedience. Obedience. If you struggle with joy, if life is a chore, if it's terrible, perhaps it's time to go back and look at your obedience level. I have to do that sometimes. Fourth, we see that through salvation... We have assurance of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. And I'll just broadly put that as our purpose. Our ministry. For the sprinkling with his blood. Now Peter was writing to, to people who had some context that we maybe don't always have. Especially to the Jewish people who had been scattered. Who knew the Old Testament scriptures. They would have immediately remembered that there are three times in the Old Testament where people were sprinkled with blood. The first of these was in Exodus chapter 24, where the, established, where the covenant with, with the Israelites was established. As part of the covenantal ceremony, the people were sprinkled with blood. A second instance in Exodus chapter 29 where Aaron and his sons were being set apart for the priesthood. And scripture says that they were being sprinkled with the blood as part of that consecration, as part of that sanctification to serve God as his priests. The third instance, so Leviticus chapter 14, where a leper who had been cast out, 
a leper who had been forced to live without the bounds of the camp, who had to cry out, unclean, unclean, whenever somebody approached. When their healing came, when their cleansing came, they were required to go to the tabernacle, then to the temple, to present themselves before the priest, who after examination went through a ritual, which included, among other things, being sprinkled with blood as a testimony to their cleanliness. Now think about these three things. The establishment of a covenant. And scripture tells us that we have been brought into covenantal relationship with the living God. And it's not an Old Testament kind of covenant that was based on doing certain things. If you do this, I'll bless you. If you don't do this, I'll keep you. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. And that's why the children of Israel had to constantly go back to sacrifice over and over. And those sacrifices to cover their sin, not to remove their sin, not to absolve their sin, but simply to cover it until such a time as the real sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world came and once and for all dealt with it. You see, the covenant we're in now is a covenant that's between a father and a son. Because if it's between us, we would never be able to hold up our end of it. But Christ held up our end of it for us so that the covenant that he's made with his father and his father's made with him, we are the recipients of every blessing, every right, every benefit, every good thing because of what Christ has done for us. And it came through his blood which was shed at Calvary. We have been sprinkled with a blood that brought us into covenant with God himself through Christ. But the second instance, Aaron and his sons being ordained, for the priesthood. Well, it was read to us this morning. The, these scriptures weren't coordinated with me. But 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Who called you out of darkness. And into his marvelous light. You see, we have been ordained as priests of the living God. Regardless of our profession, regardless of any title before our name or any letters after our name, we are all called as priests of the Lord. And you see, all too often our focus is on blessing people. And that's a good thing to do. I'm not discounting that. Too many times ministry is viewed as being about others. Even worship, I've been in, in places and in conferences where I hear about creating a worship experience. And usually what that means, let's do things to get the people excited and feel good. And there's nothing wrong with being excited, nothing wrong with feeling good. But worship is only directed to God. And whatever flows out of that are the things that excite us. And deal with us and touch our hearts and our emotions. You see, we are called as priests to God. And the overflow of ministry is the blessings that we receive and others receive. If you go back to Deuteronomy 10 verse 8. The work of the Levites, the work of the priesthood was described in three things. First of all, to carry his glory. Because the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. 
the very Shekinah or glory of God. We are ordained, brothers and sisters, to carry the glory of God. Because we are created in His image, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. We are the temple of His Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19. And Colossians 1, 27 tells us that the very Christ dwells in us, the hope of glory. You see, we're His representatives in this world, and in many cases... We're the first and sometimes the only Jesus that people are going to see. What's revealed in us and through us by His power, by His presence, by His fellowship. The second thing they were ordained to do, to carry His glory, but also to stand in His presence. See, when Christ called the disciples in Mark, I believe it's chapter 4, Scripture says that he called them to be with him. Before he ever told them, go out and preach. Before he ever told them, go out and, and lay hands on the sick. Before he ever go, told them to go out and exercise authority over the demons. He called them to be with him. And you see, sometimes with all of our goals, all of our objectives, all of our to-do lists, it's easy to miss this. God is not first about our doing, but about our being. Our doing that bears fruit, that is eternal, that is helpful, will only come out of our being. Because what he's called us to do is to be in his presence, to be with him, to carry his glory. And then the third thing that was the call of the Levites, carry his glory, stand in his presence, and bless his name. To bless his name. To bless his name when we're by ourselves. To bless his name when we're in good company like this morning. To bless his name when we're out and about in society. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 34 verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His name shall continually be in my mouth. And there was a third time that blood was sprinkled on the lepers. And leprosy is often shown as a picture of sin. Something that makes us abhorrent. Something that, that separates us from the world around or from, from the fellowship with God. And Jesus said, or Isaiah said rather, Though your sins be like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Jesus said, you've been made clean by the word that I have spoken. And as so many of the old songs would indicate, we've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Praise God. You see, that should give us peace. And it should give us purpose. Last point. Through salvation... We have assurance of the source of God's kindness. And it's his grace. May grace be multiplied to you. Maybe you've seen the acronym grace. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Ephesians 4.7 tells us. But grace was given to each one of us. According to the measure of Christ's gift. And is there any measuring the gifts of Christ? 
and omniscient, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God without beginning, without end, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the one who was and is and is to come? Is there any measuring His limits? Not at all. Romans 3.24, we are justified by His grace, just as if we've never sinned, made right, His righteousness covering us by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption that bought us, the price being His blood. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. 1 Peter 1.13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I like Romans chapter 2 verse 4. I, I think I've shared this verse probably many times. It's one of those kind of verses. A friend of mine years ago, one of my prayer partners, was concerned about his son. We're still praying for him. He said, pray for my son. That he'll see God's kindness. And then in parentheses he had Romans 2 verse 4. So I looked it up and it says. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness. And forbearance and patience. Not knowing that God's kindness. Is meant to lead you to repentance. You see sometimes when I think about God. I think about God whose, whose patience is starting to run thin. And he's going to get his stick out and crack me on the head. To get me to repent. And sometimes it takes that. There is such a thing as judgment. But right here we see God's preferred method is to show us his goodness. To show us his kindness. To show us how wonderful he is. To show us how gracious he is. To show us how marvelous, how magnificent he is. Beyond anything we can even imagine. He's better than that. So that we will see it, experience it, enjoy it, and our hearts will be moved to repentance. To turn from our sin and to turn to Him. Turning from sin without turning to something better is regret. Turning from sin to God is repentance. And Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. You see, it wasn't an accident that, that Peter started this letter with this encouragement to the saints. Reminding them, you're not of this world. It's okay. Because there's a God who loves you, a God who saved you, a God who set you free, a God who's given you the, the power to obey, a God who's shown you His grace. And a God who ultimately multiplies peace to you. See, in these two verses, we see the assurance of the fullness of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Elect by the Father. Chosen by the Father. Set apart by the Spirit. And cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he who is for us, or greater is he who is in us, than he who is in the world. And we've got three on our side. One God, eternally existing in three persons. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. And because of all of this, we are assured of the peace of God. If we can just, just grab this this morning. This is the, the point I wanted to make.
through grace we are given salvation and in salvation we find peace. We're not guaranteed a lack of problems, but we're guaranteed a multiplication of peace. Peter could have written, peace be added to you, but he didn't. He said, peace be multiplied to you, so the increase is not bit by bit by bit, but exponential. And here's another good test. What is your peace level like this morning? Because maybe it's time to revisit the Prince of Peace. Maybe it's time to talk to the peace speaker and to ask him for another measure, a multiplication that passes all understanding. Praise team, you can make your way up this morning. You see, what I'm talking about this morning, this grace, this peace, is a gift that's found in Christ only. And most of us know that, and we've learned it the hard way, because we look for peace in so many other things. I could go down the list, you know, drugs, uh, promiscuity, hobbies, business, whatever it is. And apart from Christ, there's no satisfaction. It's Christ that makes our lives sweet and satisfying. And that gift's only found through the cross. Let me summarize. Confidence in God's purpose for us brings peace. Holiness brings peace. Obedience brings peace. Worship, true worship, brings peace. Relationship with God Himself brings peace. Cleansing brings peace. The grace of God. It's not dependent on anything I, I do or don't do. It brings peace. And if you need a multiplication of peace this morning, I just invite you to come and spend time with him. So, Lord, we commit this now to you. And I ask God that you give us peace. A peace that will prepare us for what I believe are dark days ahead. A peace that's going to carry us through whatever we're facing today. Lord, I am so thankful that peace is found in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, the altar's open.